things change. <laughs> and, uh, but Corb was losing his voice, and uh, so he was going to sing, I guess, a number today. Of course, his wife, Carol, did a wonderful job with that song on the Transfiguration, but that's why things change. So he came down and said, you're up as soon as the organ's done, and I said, why don't you sing one brief chorus? And I wish I could lose my voice like he lost his and still be able to sing like that. That's pretty amazing. Um, but that's why things have changed. I just thought you should know what was happening on the inside. Not that it makes any difference. In our study in the Gospel according to Mark, we've entitled the series Simply Jesus. And if I were going to pick a key text to be the theme text for this entire study, or one verse that would be the theme verse for the entire book of Mark's Gospel, I could choose no better than chapter 9 and verse 8, where the Scripture simply says that when they looked up, they saw no one except Jesus. I like the way the old King James translates it. That's the way I memorized it many moons ago. Uh, when they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one save Jesus only. You get the picture. It's an important time in the life of the disciples, and they need to be refocused. And their focus needs to be centered on Simply, Jesus. That's why we're doing this study, to once again see who Jesus is and to enter into his teaching and hopefully enter into a daily relationship with the Savior. So as you turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 9, let me just give you a brief review of where we have been. The disciples made their way up to Caesarea Philippi. And the map here gives us some indication of where that is. It's in the northern part of Palestine. It's, uh, what, maybe 30 miles or so north of the Sea of Galilee. And it is a very important city. And this is where Jesus says to his disciples, who do the people say that I am? And they give all these answers, Elijah Moses, one of the prophets, Jeremiah. Jesus said, who do you say that I am? And Peter says, you are the Christ, right? The son of the living God. Right on, Peter, way to go. That's the best answer you've ever given to any question in your entire life. You are the Christ. You are the son of the living God. Then Jesus immediately says, I'm afraid you guys have some misunderstanding about the Christ, so let me tell you that the Christ must suffer many things. This is Mark 8 in verse 32. Uh, Jesus is going to go on his way to Jerusalem. I'm going on my way to Jerusalem, and I'm going to be mistreated and abused and mocked and beaten and crucified, and I'll come out of the tomb three days later. And the disciples now are incredulous because that's not their view of the Messiah. He's going to rule and reign and put Israel back in control. So Peter says, no, you won't. <laughs> You've got it all wrong. I know who you are, and I know what's going to happen to you. And Jesus said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. Not that... 
Peter was Satan, but he was speaking demonic doctrine. He was taking the devil's side. He was trying to steer Jesus clear of the cross. And there's no redemption without the cross. And then Jesus said, not only am I going to have a cross, you guys are too. If any of you, and now he's speaking to the whole crowd, if any of you want to follow me as my disciples, you must take up your cross daily and follow me. And I think by this time, the disciples were standing there with blank stares. Have you ever seen it? A blank stare? That's what you get when you ask your kids, you know, have you done your chores yet? Blank stare. Like, I have no idea what you're talking about. And then Jesus, at the end of Mark 8, notice verse 38, he said, If anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man, that's the title he's using for himself, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his Father's glory with the holy angels. And it's unfortunate that we have a chapter break here because the theme is still going on and Jesus is still speaking. And he says to them, I tell you the truth. Some of you who are standing here will not taste death, a euphemism which simply means you won't die, until you see or before you see the kingdom of God coming with power. Now, this is arguably one of the most difficult verses in all the Gospel of Mark to understand. Some of you <clears throat> that I'm talking to right now, Jesus said, you won't die until you see the Son of Man coming with power. And we can understand that they might think that this reference has to do with the second coming because that's what he said in verse 38. The Son of Man will come in the Father's glory with the holy angels. Some of you won't die until you see the kingdom of God come with power. Now, I say it's difficult because if you think that this refers to the second coming, then Jesus was wrong because they all died and the second coming hasn't happened yet. So we go back into our uh, uh, theological doublespeak and say, well, <clears throat> by death he meant this or he meant that. No, I, I don't think... That's what's going on here at all. I think we still need to take the Scripture literally. I just think we misunderstand what he said in verse 1 when he said, some of you won't die until you see the kingdom of God come with power. And here's the clue. Always look for a clue in the text. The very next verse, verse 2 says, after six days, Jesus took some of them. Peter, James, and John, the chief of the disciples, he took some of them up into a high mountain. Mark very rarely gives time cues. By the way, this story is found in three different Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Matthew says, after six days. Mark says, after six days. Luke says, after eight days. And this is where the unbelievers come in and say, aha, see, the Bible's wrong. No, it's not. Don't we always talk about? And if you and I are talking about an event, some of us might talk about the period of time in between us announcing it and the actual event. And that's what Mark and 
Matthew do? There are six days between this announcement and the actual event. Luke includes the announcement and the event. And that's how he comes up with eight. No problem. But here's a clue. I'm connecting my prediction with the next thing that is going to happen. And this next thing that is going to happen is one of the most dramatic events that takes place in the life of Christ arguably next to the crucifixion and resurrection. All gospel writers, all these three gospel writers, Matthew, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, put these together. The announcement about the kingdom coming in power and the transfiguration of Christ. So I think what Jesus was talking about in verse 1 is what takes place in verse 2 and in verse 3. Not all of them, but some of them are going to see the kingdom of God come in power as it's manifest in the transfiguration of Jesus Christ. So I want us to look at this story this morning and glean what we can from it. You'll notice in verse 2, it says, Peter, James, and John, um, with Christ, Jesus led them up into a high mountain. The highest mountain near Caesarea Philippi is Mount Hermon. It's about 9,200 feet above sea level. And you'll see it on the map here. It's just a little bit north, actually right by the city. They're in the foothills. Below is Mount Tabor, which is about maybe 30 or 40 miles from their location. And it is south of the Sea of Galilee. Now, I put these two locations there because traditionally, they say that the transfiguration took place on Mount Tabor. If you go to Israel, Mount Tabor is only about 1,200 feet into the air. In fact, it's on a plain, and and this mountain is kind of sticking up uh, all by itself. It almost looks like one of those hills that the Granger people build when they're hiding garbage. (laughs) It's not, but... It looks like that. I don't think that that's probably the place of the transfiguration for several reasons. It's not the highest mountain. Number two, it's far from their location. And number three, in that day, there was a fortress, a Hasmonean fortress built on top of Mount Tabor. So it wasn't a place where you could go to get alone, whereas Mount Hermon, that's a place that is remote. Mount Hermon, the highest mountain in all of Israel, and this next picture shows that it's the only place that is snow-capped in Israel. It's the only place where you can go skiing in the whole land, and it's sometimes called Grandpa because the snow looks like a white beard. Doesn't make a whole lot of difference, but I think this is where the transfiguration took place. And what we learn about Jesus from this amazing event is astounding. First of all, I want you to notice this astonishing transfiguration. We'll talk a little bit about what's actually taking place. They went up into a high mountain. They were all alone, verse 2. And there Jesus was transfigured before them. By the way, when you read Luke's gospel, it says that they went up to the mountain to pray, and while Jesus was praying, he was transfigured. I think that's significant. Good things happen when you pray. And Jesus is praying, and then 
he is transfigured. He knew this was going to happen. He predicted it in verse 1. And now there is the fulfillment of that prediction in this uh, wonderful transfiguration. By the way, the Greek word behind the English word transfigure is a word you know very well, metamorphosis. The Greek word metamorpho, metamorphosis. What is metamorphosis? The Greek scholar from Moody, Bi uh, Moody Institute years ago, Kenneth Weiss, described it like this. Metamorphosis is an outward change of appearance that reflects true inward reality. Let me say that again. It is an outward change in appearance that it reflects true inward reality. There's a similar Greek word used in the New Testament. Sounds similar, but it means to masquerade. And to masquerade is where your outside appearance does not reflect your true inward heart. Right? So during Halloween, kids come to your door begging for candy, and they're masquerading. They're wearing a costume that does not reflect who they really are. Unless it's a costume of a devil, then it might be accurate. But the point is they're trying to fool you. Now, Jesus, in one sense, Jesus wasn't masquerading as a human being because he really is a human being. But he was hiding his true nature. And on the Mount of Transfiguration, that true nature came through. And he was changed. It says in verse 3 that his clothes became dazzling white, whiter than anyone in the world could bleach them. One of the gospel writers said, it was as bright as a bolt of lightning. By the way, we, we, we kind of think that people in that day probably wore white robes. They didn't. No one wore white. Living in a dusty, arid climate, if you did wear white, it wouldn't be white very long. So a white robe that was brighter than anyone could whiten it was an amazing thing. But it wasn't just the clothes that were unusually white. Matthew says that his face was shining like the sun. By the way, glory and light go together. Study the Old Testament. Glory and light go together. When God's glory is being manifest, it's bright like the sun. It's shining. It's warm. It radiates, and the face of Jesus was changed, Matthew says. Not literally changed, but in appearance, as the divinity of Christ now began to come through the humanity of Christ. What is happening? Two things. Two things are happening. This is a look back to see what Jesus used to be like. This is a glance backward. We read when Jesus prayed in John 17, remember the high priestly prayer of Christ? He said these words, Father, this is just before the cross, Father, glorify me with yourself, with the glory that I had with you from the beginning. Jesus started out 
actually didn't start out. He always existed. But from the very beginning, before the beginning, here is Christ existing with the same glory that the Father had because he is God. And Philippians 2 says that he left that high privileged position to come to this earth to become a true man. And when he became a true man, the humanity covered up the divinity. I like what Charles Spurgeon says about this thing. He says it is a glory to Jesus. Forever it will be to his glory that while on earth he concealed his glory. Spurgeon said there were probably times when Jesus was all alone and the glory just kind of was bursting out. He worked hard to keep it under wraps. He worked hard to restrain it so no one would see it. But now it just bursts forth. This is who he truly is. God in the flesh. And he was transfigured before them. By the way, you and I radiate glory or reflect glory. God radiates it. He originates it. You and I are like bike reflectors. If there's some light shining on us, then maybe we'll shine a little bit. But we have no innate righteousness or holiness or light in us. And that's why the closer you get to the Lord, the more your face might shine. And when you spend time with God alone, maybe you, like Moses, will come down from the mountain with a glowing face. But even that will soon recede because you and I have no innate glory of our own. But Jesus does. And he's keeping it under wraps until he gets up on this mountain and they're praying. He says, okay, let her shine. And the light just begins to come out with such brightness that everyone is stunned and filled with fear. So what is this that we learn about Jesus Christ from the, this astonishing event, this dramatic transfiguration? We learn that Jesus is the God-man. He is God in human flesh. He is God incarnate. That's what Jesus wants them to see. But this isn't just a look back to see where he came from. This is a look forward to see where they're going. This is a glimpse of future glory. It's a preview. It's a foretaste. Remember, he just told them that discipleship is hard. If you're going to follow me, you got to take up your cross and you got to die daily. But Jesus said, that's not all there is to it. <clears throat> you were right, glory is coming. And let me just give you a little preview of what that glory is going to look like. Are you ready? Of course, they weren't. Boom, here's the glory. So it's a glance back to where he came from, what he truly is, and it's a glimpse forward to what he's going to bring. And this passage is all about encouraging disciples like you and me who must die daily to ourselves and even suffer persecution in this world that one day the glory of Christ will be on display everywhere and the kingdom of God will come with power. So that's what's happening here in this amazing event. Second thing I want to highlight, second thing that we can learn from is this extraordinary conversation that was going on. Not only do we learn from the appearance of Christ as to who he is, 
but we learn from the associates that show up. Verse four says, and there appeared before them Elijah and Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. Now, we're told a couple interesting things in Luke's gospel. Number one, that these two also appeared in glorious splendor. Not the same glory that Jesus had, but they were resurrected bodies, or they were glorified bodies in some sense, shape, or form. And we also read in Luke that they were talking with Christ about his departure. Luke uses a very interesting Greek word. It's the word exodus. They were talking about his departure and what was going to be fulfilled in the city of Jerusalem. So talk about a Bible conference. Jesus and Moses and Elijah talking about the trip down to Jerusalem, the fact that Jesus is going to fulfill all the word of God and then die. Be raised again after he dies. Uh, This is a little akin to the discussion that uh, the two individuals had with Jesus on the road to Emmaus. Remember that in Luke 24, where Jesus opened up the scriptures and showed in the scriptures all the things concerning, concerning himself? I would love to have that on tape and listen to it every day. Now, this was one of those kinds of amazing conversations. Why Moses and Elijah? Well, they're probably the two outstanding characters of the Old Covenant, and Jesus is the founder of the New Covenant, the Old Covenant being the Old Testament. Moses is connected to the giving of the what? The law. Elijah is connected with the proclamation of the prophets. Moses, the greatest lawgiver. Elijah, probably the greatest prophet. And they were two individuals who in their lifetime converse with God on a mountain and two individuals who had very famous departures from this world. Moses died, but no one knew where he was buried because God took care of the the funeral arrangements. And Elijah was raptured, right? And now they come back, by the way, which teaches us that there's nothing to the theory of soul sleep. For here are two, two who died. Moses died 1,450 years before this, and Elijah, it was 900 years when he was raptured. And now they come back, and they're in glorious splendor talking with Jesus Christ about his death and his burial and his resurrection, all that's going to take place. <laughs> what a conversation that must have been. And the disciples were privy to this. Now, what does this all mean? Well, it means that, yes, discipleship is hard, and you've got to die daily, but there is coming a day in which all the disciples of Christ will be with him in glory, in glorious splendor, talking about the great conquering events, those stupendous, wonderful events in salvation history that brought us salvation and life. We lose our life, we gain glory. By the way, even the best of disciples need to be refocused at times, need to be restored, 
need to be retooled. Peter, James, and John, the leaders of the 12, are now given an opportunity to kind of get back to where they need to be. But there's something else happening here. If, if Moses speaks of the law, and Elijah speaks of the prophets, and they're talking with Jesus, the whole idea of this conversation is to show that the new covenant, Jesus, is superior to the old covenant, Moses and Elijah. That they brought the word of God, but Jesus is the final word. Oh, in the past, God spoke through the law and the prophets, but now in these last days, he's spoken to us by his son, Hebrews said. Jesus said, I've not come to eliminate the law and the prophets, I've come to fulfill them. Here is a visible demonstration that Jesus is the final word, and God is now speaking to the world through his son. And what a demonstration it was. Now, the scripture says in verse 5, Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it's good for us to be here. <laughs> Let's put up three shelters, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. Now, again, I encourage you to read the other gospel writers because Luke tells us that these disciples were sleeping when all this happened. And that they woke up, <laughs> they were sleeping in prayer. Is that going to happen again? Yeah, it hasn't happened yet, but it's going to happen in the garden. They're sleeping on the mountain with Jesus, and they're missing it all until they finally wake up. And the scripture also tells us that they are filled with fear. That's in Mark uh, verse 6. They did, Peter didn't know what to say, but he decided to say something. Let's build three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. By the way, there's also something else interesting in Luke's gospel. It says that Moses and Elijah were departing. So they were walking away or going up. I'm not sure what it was. When Peter woke up and got an idea of what was happening. By the way, no one had to tell him who Moses and Elijah were. I, I kind of think in glory, you won't have to have a church directory to see who is who. You'll somehow just know who everyone is. Wouldn't that be great to have a glorified mind <laughs> and know who everyone is? But they were departing, and that's when Peter said, rubbing his eyes because of the sleep and in fear, not knowing what to say, but he had to say something, let's build three shelters and keep these guys here because Peter wanted to stay on the mountain, which is where you and I normally want to stay. Two problems with that. Number one, Jesus told them that they were going to experience persecution. This was a glimpse of future glory, but they had to go back down to the real world. And there's another problem with Peter's impulsive recommendation. You know what the biggest problem is? Not just that he wants to stay on the mountain and maybe avoid persecution and suffering, it's that he puts Jesus on the same level with Moses and Elijah. Let's build three huts, like in the Feast of Tabernacles, for these guys. I've never counted it, but there are multiple times in Peter's life where he puts his foot in his mouth, and this is one of the best times of all. 
I think it was Gandhi who said, uh, you shouldn't speak unless you can improve the silence. Someone else said there are only two kinds of speakers, those who have something to say and those who have to say something. <laughs> and I think Peter was kind of that second kind. You know, but he was afraid and he didn't know what to say and, and so he didn't even know what he was saying. He just began to babble like you and I often do when we are frightened. He's speaking out of this nervous energy and he said, I, I don't want this to end. You guys come back. Let's build three shelters for all of you and we'll just have a great time on the mountain. I mean, I would love to have an extended conversation with Moses and Elijah, wouldn't you? I think you and I are often tempted to isolate ourselves from the real world and just try to stay with Jesus all the time. Wouldn't it be great if we could just stay in church where we'd be protected? Singing, oh, I love to sing the hymns and I love to pray and I love to study the word and that's good to love all of those things but we do this not as an end in and of itself, as a means to glorify God, yes, but also as a means to go from here re-energized and refocused. It was Isaac Watts who said, my willing soul would stay in such a frame as this and sit and sing herself away to everlasting bliss unless the Lord said, go. And so although we can understand where Peter is coming from, his speech is really wrong, and we've got to reject it. And we know it's wrong because notice the third thing that we can learn from. There is a definitive affirmation from heaven. There is a divine voice that's going to speak and set Peter straight. We read in verse 7, then a cloud appeared. Matthew says it was a bright cloud. Isn't that interesting? A bright cloud. Yeah, I guess occasionally we get bright clouds, but often clouds are dark. It was a bright cloud. It appeared and enveloped them. I'm convinced that that bright, shining cloud was what you have in the Old Testament called the Shekinah, Shekinah glory cloud. It's the cloud that preceded Moses, the pillar of cloud by day, the fire, fiery pillar by night. It's the pillar that, of the cloud that filled the tabernacle. It's the cloud that filled the temple of Solomon. It's the cloud that departed, Ezekiel said, when the glory of God left the temple. It's the glory of God in a bright cloud. And it's been gone for 600 years, and the Jews believed that cloud would come back when Messiah came. And here's the cloud coming back and enveloped them. And that's why they were so frightened, or it added to their fear. And not only that, but a voice came from the cloud. And Luke said the voice thundered. I was kind of hoping it was still thundering when I got to this point, you know, just for effect. <laughs> One time I was talking about the thunder of God, and I mentioned the thunder of God, and thunder actually shook the building. Some of you might have been here for that, and it was a great effect. People thought I'd planned it. Somehow we had, you know, someone in the back making the sound of thunder. It thundered. Bright cloud, voice of God. By the way, three times the voice of God comes down. You've got the voice of God at the baptism of Christ, right? 
You've got the voice of God here at the transfiguration of Christ. And then in that last week when Jesus is teaching in the temple area in Jerusalem, he cries out and says, Father, glorify your name. And then a voice came from heaven saying, I have glorified it and will glorify it again. And the people who stood by heard it and said it thundered. God spoke. And when God speaks, it's definitive. And what he says is rather amazing, isn't it? Mark says, this is my son whom I love. Listen to him. If you put it all together from the three gospel writers, this is my son, that identifies who he is, whom I love, that establishes the unique affection. In fact, the original language implies this is my beloved son, my one and only son, the one I have chosen, Luke adds. He is the anointed one, the chosen one of God. With him I am well pleased, says Matthew. A note of commendation. With him I am well pleased. You just were talking to Moses and Elijah, and those guys are okay. But I had to rebuke both of them. Moses for striking the rock, and Elijah for running from Jezebel. But this is my son, and I'm well pleased with him. And then each one adds this exhortation. Hear him. Listen to him. Follow him. And that's the whole point of the passage. Get your eyes off of people and back onto Christ. Jesus is the final word, and as great as the prophets are, and as great as teachers may be, and as great as Moses the lawgiver was, if it's only Moses, things are too harsh. If it's only Elijah, things are too speculative. We're always looking for the miraculous. When they lifted up their eyes after the cloud was gone, they saw Jesus only. Get your eyes back on Christ, church. This is the message I need to hear every day. This is my beloved son. Hear him. Ari Tori, the great Bible teacher, used to have these words engraved on his pulpit. Sirs, we would see Jesus. Taken from John 12, 21. It's a bit taken out of context, but the point is well taken. And anyone who would stand in that pulpit and preach the word of God was reminded it's not about you. We don't want to hear from you. We don't want your opinions. We don't want your clever ideas. We want to see Jesus. And my friends... I want to rededicate South Church to this one goal, that we see Jesus only. That we know nothing else except Jesus and him crucified. That everything else pales into insignificance and no other person is on equal level. It's Jesus and Jesus alone. And I'm so tired 
of hearing people say, I follow this person, and have you heard this person? And I'm a disciple of so-and-so. What about Christ? We need to get to the mountain and be enveloped by the cloud and hear the voice and see Jesus only. Luke tells us, or Matthew tells us, when the cloud came rolling in, the disciples fell on their face. And Jesus touched them and said, don't be afraid. Get up. And when they got up, that's when they looked and saw Jesus alone. He said, Pastor, wow. (laughs) If I could just experience that. If I could just be on the mountain and see Jesus in his glory. Well, listen to someone who is there. This is James, or Peter, excuse me. First Peter, Second Peter chapter one. I'll get it right. Second Peter chapter one. Peter says, we're not making up clever stories when we told you about the powerful coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Notice he calls it the coming of Christ. We saw his majestic splendor, with our own eyes when he received honor and glory from the Father. When the voice from the majestic glory of God said to him, this is my dear son whom I love, and he brings me great joy. We ourselves heard that voice from heaven when we are with him on the holy mountain. You know what Peter's talking about? By the way, where did Mark get his information to write his gospel? From Peter. And maybe this is a lesson Peter needed to learn. I need to get my eyes off of people. I was the one who wanted to build tabernacles for everyone. And God said, no, only see Jesus. So Peter says, this is a true story. This is a real account. I was there. And because of this experience, I have even greater confidence in the written word, the prophetic word that each one of us needs to pay attention to. Peter is basically saying, I was there, I saw the glory, but the written word is even, I have even more confidence in this. My eyes could fool me, but the written word is powerful and alive. You want to see Jesus? You want to see Jesus in his glory? Read the word. You want to hear the voice of God speak from heaven? He has. Read the word. And if you come off your knees seeing how great and glorious Jesus is, that he's the God-man and the final word and the beloved son, if you come away saying it's all about Jesus, then your heart and life will be transformed as well. Let's pray. Lord, help us to learn from this amazing event not to be discouraged by the times of suffering and the difficult trials that we face as disciples. Not to become depressed by the fact that we must take up our cross daily and follow you. Let us have an eye on your glory. For someday you will come and set up your kingdom and the glory of God will cover the earth as the water covers the sea. May we see that glory even today. In Jesus' name, amen.